Hello everybody, this is Gabe Lancaster. And this is Trenton Dunn. This is another episode of the Create Motion Podcast. Today, our episode is with a guy named Avid Amiri, who is a super fascinating guy. A quick summary of who Avid is. He uh, has made his wealth by selling and flipping e-commerce businesses. He graduated with a master's degree from the University of Utah and then went forward to Cornell University where he ended up getting his MBA. Um, So he's got a lot of college experience, but he's also got a lot of that entrepreneurial kind of innovative mindset. So super interesting conversation. He's honestly just one of the most intelligent guys I've ever talked to. Uh, He dominates the conversation for the majority of it. I don't say a whole lot, but it's because he just says a lot of good stuff. So uh, super wise dude, super smart, very intellectual and has got some got some good things, good opinions to share. We're releasing this podcast during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. I hope everybody out there is doing okay. I know for Trenton and I, it's been pretty crazy. Uh, people are quarantining, locking down. Countries are shutting down. It's uh, it's a crazy world right now. So I hope everybody's doing well. I hope you can find some beneficial things from this podcast and uh, send in love to everybody. Okay, so I just like to start with basic questions like. Um, where were you born and what was your childhood like? Uh, sure, so I uh, grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I am the son of two immigrant parents, uh, both of whom uh, fled the Iranian Revolution in the late 1970s um, and then underwent a lot of the, the trials um, associated with uh, culture shock, um, reestablishing um, some sense of groundedness um, in a foreign country. Um, obviously, we look back at that transition as extremely fortunate. Um, the country is um, uh, suffering a lot in a lot of ways. We're certainly proud of our heritage, but um, the U.S. provided uh, our family with substantial opportunity. Yeah. Um, so w- I was I was in Boston. Um, and how old through, were you when you moved? When, when you yeah. Guys came so here? I was I was two three years old. Wow. So pretty young. So do you have memory of before really or? I do not. Don't. Okay. But no. but continue on. Yeah. Yeah. So we were here for a. Uh, we were actually in Boston um, until I was in sixth grade, and then in uh, seventh grade, uh, my parents chose to transition to Salt Lake City. Um, the hope was a higher quality lifestyle at a cheaper cost of capital. So uh, their objective was to uh, uh, experience their own manifest destiny. Living in a major city obviously has a lot of drawbacks um, and uh, the costs were pretty high. And so uh, they were looking to cut back on their expenses. And so, you know, my transition to Salt Lake was rather random. Um, my, 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 my parents didn't even conduct an exploratory trip out here beforehand. Really? They just packed up and moved. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So then, so you were in sixth grade, moving yeah. to Salt Lake City, a place right. you'd never even been to before. Yeah. And you said you had a sibling, yeah. right? Were you, are you older or younger? Uh, I have, I have a younger brother and an older sister. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And, and you come in here with your whole family and, and what does that look like? I mean, what, as a sixth grader coming here, what? Sure. So again, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of uh, a transition. Um, I think I was really kind of um, enamored by the mountains and uh, the natural environment. Uh, what I think was most notable looking back is uh, Utah, where Salt Lake really was a land of opportunity um, in that 
real estate was was cheap. It was very mm -hmm. inexpensive. Um, you know, the population was moderate. It's nothing close to the kind of uh, population that growth that we've that we see today. Um, so I think that uh, you know Salt Lake definitely had a lot to offer our family. Um, and um, I actually attended the University of Utah for my undergrad and uh, for my first master's um, and uh, in political science. So I do consider myself to be a Utah native. Okay, cool. So you <laughs> went to college here in Utah, but then you ended yeah. up going to Cornell. Right, right. yeah. So, so, so that's getting a little bit ahead, but uh, I, I'm, I'm interested about your parents in, in uh, coming over here. What were they doing? What was their lifestyle like? Were they, what were they doing? Were they entrepreneurs like yourself or were they, what were they doing? Yeah, so um, they, my mom is an artist and uh, my dad um, has, uh, uh, he likes to say about 30 years of formal education. Um, so he uh, certainly stresses, stressed uh, through, throughout uh, my childhood the importance of uh, academic strength and a commitment towards education. Um, but uh, certainly the United States is the land of opportunity for a lot of individuals. It wasn't so much for him um, and uh, uh, he currently resides in Costa Rica um, where he can enjoy that higher quality lifestyle with um, his, uh, his benefits, social security and some money that he generates through a position that he has. Um, so certainly the relationship that um, uh, we've had to Utah has been long-standing, and um, I think that uh, yeah, they were they were moderately influential in mm -hmm. terms of uh, putting an emphasis on personal success, cool, and uh, hard work and effort. So, Very which cool. I think is fairly typical to a lot of um, first-generation immigrant Immigrants. families. Totally. Yeah, I mean, you know, are you familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk? Uh, vaguely. No, vaguely, yeah. He, he talks about a lot of that, that same principle that a lot of immigrant children, that thing, that, that seems to be a theme, the pushing the hard work, pushing the success and the whole idea. And we kind of talked about it on the phone, but yeah. of the American dream. Right. And it's really something that you come, you earn. And so do you think that was kind of instilled in you? from a young age, do you think that that was a big theme? Yeah, no, I think actually for me, um, we were under a lot of socioeconomic duress, so there was a lot of economic pressure, and I think that pressure can be very uh, salubrious or healthy up to a point. Um, if it's not excessive, um, then that pressure actually builds a lot of energy um, and uh, motivation for youngsters. If that pressure gets excessive, then you know it can overwhelm um, certain certain uh, individuals as well. Um, one thing that I also started doing at a very young age is um, I started voraciously reading and engaging in uh, self-development courses that were available through the Salt Lake Public Library. So, not surprisingly, they had. Um, various tape sequences. Um, one was entitled The Psychology of Achievement by Brian Tracy. Um, and I engaged in a lot of kind of uh, self-directed or voluntary mental programming. Um, which is From what age, like starting at what age? Yeah, so I think I was in probably about seventh grade at the time. Wow. Um, so um, learning the, the, and these audio courses might be 15, 20 hours in, in length fairly detailed, so really spending a lot of time um, learning about 
the habits, practices, strategies, and tactics of, of success um, from some of these uh, motivational gurus. Um, some of that material um, I still use today, but most importantly, it taught me, you know, a series of natural laws, as they called them, laws of, you know, expectation theory, laws of, for example, uh, that might have to do with uh, goal setting and um, engaging in, uh, you know, positive uh, uh, visualization for, you know, the achievement and the attainment of your goals. So I did a lot of that and I think that was really helpful yeah. um, because when I was, when I was at the University of Utah for my first, uh, for my, my undergraduate degree, uh, at the tender age of 18, I started my first business. And um, I had uh, a friend of mine at that time who was um, pretty motivated about a sport or an outdoor recreation, um, which was, uh, you know, at that time a lot bigger than it is now, but windsurfing. Um, okay. He uh, had identified, he was fairly adept and he had identified a niche within that market. He said, you know, we've got these boards, they're made out of epoxy, they're fairly delicate. So why don't, uh, I think there'd be a market for developing board bags, um, board bags that were not only protective to these uh, to these uh, windsurfing boards, but also heat reflective. So we started a business, and um, we sourced out the suppliers, the vendors, um, a manufacturing facility that was here in the United States, and we started producing board bags. And really, the turning point behind that business was after a submission to Windsurfing Magazine, the leading publication in that industry. Um, and an editor, editor review where he wrote a one-page synopsis um, or glowing commendation of the product, we started seeing the orders really flow in um, at uh, an accelerated rate. Wow. So um, what I learned very quickly is revenue is not necessarily correlative of uh, net earnings or net profits. <laughs> Profit. <laughs> so our operating costs were too high. Generating those products here in the United States didn't really yield um, a uh, positive cash flow that would generate any kind of long-term sustainability behind the business. So we were unsuccessful ultimately, but it was my first foray into entrepreneurship. Cool. Um, and, uh, you know, as I've said before, um, there have been reports and studies on serial entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, I think the general consensus is until an entrepreneur finds the business that actually takes root and uh, with, with, with which he or she is successful, uh, it takes on average about 18 different uh, tries or attempts. Um, so uh, new venture creation, you know, lack of success, picking yourself up, dusting yourself off, starting all over again. So, um, you know, I learned at a young age um, that while I was still energetic, while I had time, while I, while, while I wasn't um, uh, involved with the priorities and requirements of uh, a family, which are, you know, certainly critical and uh, extremely important, um, but uh, while uh, you know, I was at uh, an age where I had a lot of the motivation, the drive, and the energy, that was the time to make a move. So I wanted to get as many of these businesses under my belt as possible. So shortly after the uh, experience that we had with the uh, windsurfing boards, which is the name of the company was Rhino Windsurfing, um, after that particular experience, I then transitioned to a business 
that was um, involved um, with, you know, a bit of a creative idea. Um, we felt like we could really help parents regulate reckless driving on, on behalf of their, their teen drivers by setting up a phone system or a network where in exchange for a monthly subscription fee or membership fee, um, parents would have uh, phone calls with um, kind of updates and overviews of driving on the part of their teens that were um, reported by, by virtue of, of other drivers on the road. Cool. So they would call the number, there would be you know a, uh, a, a designation number for that vehicle, and then they could say whether or not, hey, I just noticed that car, and it was you know driving erratically, whatever else. So that was before GPS, before cell phones and so forth. But um, we tried that, and again, it, was, uh, it got a lot of positive press. Okay. I think um, yeah, we were on a few local news stations, cool. and then you know, that ultimately uh, went sideways as well. Um, so, and that, you know, was, that was business number two. Yeah, that was business number <laughs> two. And, um, and then, um, you know, we tried our hand at uh, some nutritional supplements. Cool. Um, and, um, you know, not, not too much to report there, except, you know, we learned a very saturated industry. Um, I was always looking for ideas that had the uniqueness and the distinction where they would be notably um, distinctive from other products, other services, other businesses within a competitive set. So we were looking at you know, points of difference um, or areas of distinction um, where we could be first movers within cool. a market. And so we were also looking at incremental improvements over existing products and one of the products that we saw at the time was, um, uh, you know, I kind of identified the growing emergence of these antibacterial um, gels. Um, so the Purells, for mm -hmm. instance, made by a company called Gojo. Uh, they were doing extremely well at the time. There was quite a bit of hysteria about, you know, the importance of, you know, sanitizing yeah. your hands. And so, you know, we looked at that product and what we determined is while that product um, had a lot of positive attributes, it also had quite a few limitations as well. And one of those limitations was its applicability was only on hands or your skin, whereas you had a need for that product on public payphones, which were you know, prevalent at the time, baby changing stations, you would use them on you know, keyboards at a gas station, you know, on, the, uh, on the pump. Mm -hmm. So we developed a, uh, a, 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 a small aerosol version of that product um, maybe an ounce and a half, I think was the size. And um, we started, uh, we went back through the process of generating capital for introductory investment. We went through the process of um, uh, designing the product, coming up with the sophisticated or elegant aluminum pack packaging. So this was now, I was now in my early 20s. Okay. And um, maybe 21 or so. Um, and uh, what um, you know, we learned there is to have a successful consumer packaged goods company, you really do need a threshold of about a million dollars um, to really get those companies to a point after about two years where you're cash flow positive. But we had limited distribution through various stores and ultimately that product was sold to a, uh, a it was a, kind of a, a smaller, um, it was a, a publicly traded company, but it was 
um, probably more within the penny stock category. Okay. Uh, but they were looking to introduce products to market. And so they gave a stock in exchange for the rights to the product, which was called Purific. Um, and um, so, you know, when you get involved in a business and you're building it from the ground up, even if the objective is um, to run that business um, as a learning experience, um, you know, certainly our goal with any of these ventures, my goal is always to generate success, generate some measure of profitability. Um, you know, even if you don't get to that cash flow positive state, you are learning a, a quite a bit because you're applying those lessons to the business that ultimately is going to be successful. Right. One very hard lesson that, that I learned, um, you know, probably about the age of 19 or 20, is, is part of the windsurfing board bag venture, we found a technology which was being developed, um, it was a molded foam technology where you could build products that were form-fitting. Um, the product that we had in mind at the time was a windsurfing harness, which you wore around your waist, and um, uh, it took quite a bit of abuse, um, but uh, we determined that you could actually take molded foam technology and apply it towards these, uh, these uh, windsurfing harnesses and knowing my limitations in distributing that product, marketing that product, I sent a sample to one of the largest windsurfing suppliers in the world, a company by the name of Neil Pride. And for about two or three months, we had ongoing dialogue. They said, we want to you know, take this and come up with you know, a, uh, a version of the product. We think this is a lateral um, evolution of an existing product. And um, the uh, net conclusion there was, after two or three months of going back and forth, they adopted the technology um, on their own without uh, without providing us, you know, a single penny Anything. of compensation. Oh. So, um, you know, in hindsight, there the first thing would have been to, you know, fly out to China where they had their base, uh, get some kind of uh, contract in place, and then you know start giving them more by way of you know samples of the product and, and ideas about the technology. So yeah, there was a lot of, um, there, there were quite a few punches to the nose um, and um, a lot of, uh, uh, there, there was quite a bit of learning along the way. Um, and um, I think though, it wasn't until after I graduated from Cornell, um, after about a year and three months working for a private company in Florida, I determined that the only way I was going to achieve my financial goals was to, you know, start my own enterprise, go back to that entrepreneurship, and find a pre-established business where I could improve the operations, the efficiencies of those of, of an existing company, because momentum is really key. It's an area of criticality with a business to really get over a lot of the risk factors that you have within the first two, three years of starting your own business. So we were looking at acquiring something that was um, already operational, may have had the adequate momentum, it had some degree of revenue and reliable cash flow. That cash flow would in fact you know, pay us some kind of salary for subsistence. And what I learned scouring through you know, the online uh, uh, listings for the secondary market for, for, for companies and businesses, what I learned is those generally tend to be fairly expensive. So those trade at a multiple to existing cash flows. 
So $100,000 business at two and a half X, their earnings, it's a $250,000 business. Now what's nice about that for you know, somebody looking to get out of the workaday world into their own enterprise or operation is that you can take that two and a half X or that $250,000 purchase price and finance a good portion of it directly with the seller. Um, but if you don't have credit and you're non-collateralized, that might be a tricky thing to do. So what I found after spending, you know, myriad hours scouring through the secondary market for companies is I found a semi-inoperational potty training company uh, that was selling potty training products on the World Wide Web and the woman who owned it was essentially you know on the cusp of just shutting it down but he'd put up some kind of hail mary listing on bizbysell.com and she had some inventory so i acquired the company basically for the value of the inventory itself the website came along with it um but it had four or five years of pre-existing track record it had a customer base it had cool. uh, some branding um, and some name recognition. So we took that business and we converted it from a $30,000 business, which was basically the full value of my credit cards at the time, the credit I had available, uh, which I maxed out. And then through search engine optimization, redesigning the website, adding new products, enhancing operations, and streamlining the company along myriad fronts, uh, we converted that into a business with substantially more revenue and cash flow and sold it uh, in turn to a private investor for 330000 So that was kind of the genesis of that next business model. That start for you. Okay, yeah. cool. So that was, that was great. That was, a lot, that was a great story. That was a lot of great information that you said there. Um, one of the things that, that I think was essential from what I'm hearing in your growth is that figuring out that idea that um, you wanted to take a business that's already been started, right? That, that yeah. idea that you said that not a business, you don't wanna start a business and deal with trying to gain momentum, trying to go through those initial risks of the first two to three years or however many years right. it is, but instead take a business that's established. That idea, truthfully, is not one that I've heard all that often, yeah. right? That's not an idea that people are teaching, you know, right. go, well, go buy businesses that, right? That's right. not something that, so my question for you is, when did you learn that? Right. And, and did yeah. you learn that just through your simple trials of, yeah. okay, I started these couple businesses and experienced that? Or yeah. was it, you know, do you credit that to Cornell or, right? right. What? So what we, what I determined, and um, I had a business partner at the time who was a colleague of mine from Cornell Business School. You know, what we, what we talked about is with the MBAs that we had and kind of that Ivy League branding, mm -hmm. we thought that we could convince moneyed investors to actually acquire um, a higher value company on our behalf where we would engage as transactors or agents on their behalf to grow the business. They would invest the capital and we would invest the labor or the sweat equity sure. component. And um, when that company had been grown by virtue of um, our uh, you know, business technologies that we applied to it and by virtue of the energy and commitment that we invested, then we would split the profits over the original basis or purchase price of that company. So we were incentivized 
um, to you know really build that business because that was going to be our payout. And then from existing cash flows, there would be some kind of subsistence wage just so that we could survive during that period. And um, we found a few different target companies. Um, I found a few investors, one of which um, was a, a guy that I had, had, had come in contact with uh, in Florida who actually sat on the Federal Reserve Board for mm -hmm. the state of Florida. And it was really pretty remarkable. Um, I learned another um, valuable lesson, you know, on the eve of putting a deal together for a company that was um, in California that uh, provided uh, security services on behalf of businesses, um, which had a lot of upside potential. Uh, on the eve of putting a transaction together, after lots of our time had been invested, uh, they just pulled out. They had uh, cold feet. Oh. And um, it's, it's really too bad because they would have done very well with the business. The folks that did acquire it, I heard later about a year down the road, uh, I think doubled or tripled the size of it. So we knew it was the right target. Mm. So we had identified the asset. And I guess just to cut you know, more precisely to the lesson that was learned in that experience, what, uh, what um, you know, kind of dawned on me at that juncture, and um, you know, this doesn't sound like any kind of novel conclusion, but you know, what I learned at that point is the only fo folks that you can rely on, um, or the only individual you can rely on, is yourself. Um, relying on third parties to finance your business as you know, a third party investor um, is, uh, is, is very risky, um, inherently unpredictable. Um, we had crossed all our T's, dotted our I's, come up with, you know, pro forma financial statements. We had scientized that business. We knew it was gonna be a home run. We had made a very compelling case to our investors and they just backed out for really no valid reason. So what I determined is I had to find something on my own that was going to, um, that, that, that could I could fund. acquire, that I could fund independently and, and grow. And so we already had the kernel of, of that thought, buying something that was operational, because I had been through four or five iterations of things that I had started from scratch. And, and that realized, you were on the flip side of, right? Yeah. That someone else came and found you and said, here's a business that started, let's take them and, right. and make it better. So right? the one, and you're right, and the only one and only was the Purific, the antibacterial hand spray, the rest all essentially just kind of fell flat. Um, so. Uh, lack of funding, lack of um, you know proper distribution, the inability to withstand the one to two year period of negative cash flow until you do get to a positive cash flow situation, um, and so uh, the only company that we could acquire or that you know I had the resources to purchase was a semi-defunct potty training business that had just enough momentum and it was at just the right price point where it was within reach cool um so that was what that was what uh, you know the 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 impetus behind acquiring a business that had some measure of operation was um having gone through you know business school and and um you know analyzed successful companies having gone through various you know independent ventures um and realized that those independent ventures you know if started from their inchoate stages or from inception, were very difficult to get to a cash flow positive uh, uh, level. 
And then um, lastly, you know, the practicality of just affordability. That's what we could afford to buy. And um, once we had that first business operational and then resold at 10X its original value, then it was a no brainer to replicate that business model oh, where we started yeah, developing websites um, or acquiring distressed or underperforming uh, websites and um, enhancing those and reselling them. Cool, awesome. All right, so um, we'll get a little bit into more into the actual college, your actual college experience. Now okay. that we've kind of got your whole broad, your broad stories. So you went initially to the University of Utah, yeah. right? And I would like, you had that experience. You said you got a master's degree from there, right? Uh, yeah, all but the uh, thesis. Okay. Um, I didn't finish my thesis. Okay. Um, but it was an undergraduate degree in political science and then a master's in political philosophy and okay. political science. And then you had your business experience, or whatever, and then ended up going to Cornell. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to know, like, what is the, the comparison between going to a university like Cornell? and going to a university like the University of Utah. Is there a Okay, yeah, sure. So or? in an ideal world, in order to build your resume, I think you would work vigorously in the middle and high school levels in order to ensure that you build up the grade point average, the college preparatory test scores, and um, you know the various other um, AP, right, the criteria required to gain admittance to a very competitive school. Um, however, a very competitive school is also exorbitantly expensive. And the economic onus that that can put on students and their families can be very excessive. So what I generally recommend to youngsters is that they look at a state school which is heavily subsidized. If they have in-state tuition, they're looking at really a very modest, if not nominal, uh, tuition uh, expenditure or commitment. Um, you know, certainly a few thousand dollars for a lot of people is still a substantial amount by way of tuition, but it's certainly a heck of a lot less than a $33,000 per year tuition at an Ivy League school. So I think the best way to pair your education if you have a limited budget or if the economics are a concern is really started a state school, do extraordinarily well at that state school, and then for graduate school, that's where you're gonna want the two-year or three-year for law school, for the JD or the MBA, which would be a two-year commitment. That's where I think where you're gonna spend the bulk of your resources. Now, does that make you as competitive exiting those schools as somebody who went Cornell, Cornell, or Harvard, Cornell, or Harvard, Harvard for the undergrad and the graduate degree? Um, not necessarily, but at least you're still competitive. You're still sitting in the same interviews. You're, you're talking to the same recruiters. So really the best thing one can do by way of managing both the economics, but also maximizing the value of that branding and distinguishing yourself academically is to do, you know, precisely what I did. Um, and I would also encourage throughout the undergraduate process, which um, does provide adequate time for outside projects on a contemporaneous basis, that's when you would want to build up your resume with the small business creation or the uh, entrepreneurship, which is precisely how I managed it. So Rhino Windsurfing was when I was a freshman or software sophomore in college. 
uh, Purific was uh, simultaneous to my first graduate degree. Um, and then, um, you know, at the conclusion of that, that's when I went to uh, graduate school at Cornell, and that's going to require 100% of your time because it is extremely competitive and the workload is inordinate. Um, so that's really the best way to kind of manage that. But I do think the education is really crucial if one has loftier aspirations, if one has modest aspirations, if one is looking at um, comfortably ensconcing themselves in the middle class, then college I would not recommend within the social sciences or a liberal arts degree. Um, I would recommend a technical school. Uh, so for instance, the applied Ogden Weber Technical College, which is um, in Ogden, provides subsidized degrees in fields like coding that can you know, galvanize you and direct you into the job force right away with salaries that are actually fairly comfortable. Um, and they range from welding all the way to IT and the culinary arts. So for people that don't necessarily have an interest in liberal arts or who may be under financial pressure where they need to minimize their economic expense or their tuition commitment and get into the job force as quickly as possible. Maybe you've built a family you know, sooner than you origi originally anticipated. Maybe you've got other bills or other commitments, an aging parent and so forth, um, just debt that you're dealing with. Then I would strongly advise a technical school. Um, I think that going to a private undergraduate school, if it doesn't have that, that uh, branding, is also a big mistake. So, while I did teach at Westminster at the um, Gore School of Business for a few years, um, and that was right after Cornell, I taught entrepreneurship, MBA 560, um, and then I also had a course that I had pioneered entitled e-commerce entrepreneurship. Um, I would say for students getting involved in their undergraduate program, uh, if you are going to that school and you are paying the high rates of tuition and hoping that you can pay yourself back um, through you know, a future salary, uh, incurring a very high threshold of student debt is not a pragmatic thing to do. And I see that happen you know, time and time again. But um, you know, in general, my attitudes towards um, education um, are very favorable. I think that, uh, you know, certainly for your own benefit, molding, sculpting, um, enhancing your mind um, with a liberal arts degree is um, a gift that you will treasure for a lifetime. Um, I think having, um, you know, the intellectual aptitudes as well that can translate into a practical degree are very helpful. Uh, but I do think that this notion of a quote-unquote luxury degree is not merely rhetorical, I think it's a real thing. And if you don't have the resources to you know, subsidize a luxury degree, you should probably stay away from it. Um, and I think that uh, while you're in school, you should be spending as much free time as possible starting companies on your own, interning, engaging in activities that are going to enrich your resume, as well as work your way up, allow you to work your way up, the experiential learning curve. For me, it was going to school and starting, you know, companies on the side. Um, did that, you know, cut 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 from 
my ability to engage in social activities and uh, you know maybe uh, do a lot of the uh, the things that I would have liked to have done there's no doubt that I was spending okay. less time mountain biking than I would have liked to or climbing or you know doing other things skiing than I would have liked but you know, depending on what your goals and aspirations are in life, um, I think you can, you know, squeeze in some time for those things too, but, you know, really put your ear to the grindstone. The other thing which I think a lot of people have to recognize um, is, is part of the academic process. And um, I know a lot of youngsters that tend to be motivated, you know, they do understand this point very intrinsically, but when you get out of high school or maybe even pre-high school, and you enter into the undergraduate academic world, you have now entered the very kind of introductory phases of the rat race. And um, you should absolutely uh, disabuse yourself from any notion that you have not you know, entered into a, a hyper-competitive environment and that every step, every test that you take, every course uh, that, uh, that you take, and, and, and every, every grade that you receive is either going to have a positive or negative impact on your long-term success. So at that point, I think it behooves individuals to start taking life very, very seriously. You know, it used to be that um, the, uh, the, the, the college admissions were much more lax than they are today. That a certain test score on your ACT could still get you into a very competitive school. Now I think you'll see across the board that those introductory SAT or ACT scores have gone up by 20, 30, 40%. An introductory uh, score on your LSAT or on your MCATs or your GMATs to get into medical school or business school or law school, those have all gone up exponentially as well. So we don't live in a world anymore where being good is enough to you know, guarantee some measure of success. Being good probably gets you laid off. Now we don't even live in a world where being excellent is enough to necessarily distinguish you. Excellent is now par for the course. Um, for you know, a healthy salary in the six-figure range, um, to maintain that job, to work your way up that corporate ladder, you are looking at having you know routine um, levels of outstanding performance. And that outstanding performance starts well into your undergraduate year or before your undergraduate years, but certainly into that undergraduate program, and um, it's a race. So you know, get yourself as motivated and quote unquote pumped up as possible because um, you will be. Uh, uh, I think engaged in a vigorous and uh, you know competitive struggle against other people who want precisely what you want as well. Um, as we move into a world where automation is now taking over a lot of the white collar jobs, which before had been fairly well secure, um, software now is uh, predicted to displace um, a good measure of uh, the, the, the workforce within the legal field. Uh, software is taking over, you know, the jobs of a lot of medical practitioners. Um, even underwriting at major banks has now been taken over by software. Um, so the implications of that are going to be extremely profound. The other thing that we need to be very cognizant of is that we have moved into a world 
where pulling oneself up by their own bootstraps is no longer a very relevant model or paradigm for individual success. And I say it's not necessarily relevant because it's not the kind of format that generally prescribes individuals towards success. We have now moved more towards a format where wealth transfers generally dictate who has and who doesn't, and those wealth, wealth transfers are typically intergenerational. The other thing, which is part and parcel of that, is dynastic wealth. Um, so a very small percentage of the population that has a very firm stranglehold on um, large amounts of wealth. Yep. So you're looking at the top 1% controlling about 90% of the, you know, the, 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 uh, the wealth that exists um, in the United States. On an international level, the numbers are even more horrifying. So, you know, larger and larger amounts of wealth and smaller and smaller concentrations of individuals. In 1987, um, we had a very limited number of billionaires versus 2017. There's now 15 times more billionaires on this planet than there were in 2017. 20% of the Chinese parliament is billionaires. So we are now kind of moving into a whole new frontier where there's added pressure for youngsters and there's added pressures on, on people that are looking to really make it or distinguish themselves economically, professionally. Um, and that is a formula where wealth is now being principally produced through capital and not through labor. And when you've got a capital-based system, which is further perpetuated by kind of a tax structure where capital gains are typically taxed at 15 to 21%, and you've got labor that may be anywhere from 30 to 40%, the average ditch digger is paying more in taxes than the hedge fund manager or the uh, you know, descendant of Walt Disney, for instance, right. who's paying you know, vastly less. Walton, right? So yeah, I think that you then need to be very conscious of the way in which a lot of that lifetime success and that um, economic and, and uh, financial freedom is going to be attained. And that's largely through introductory labor, which ultimately be tr translated into uh, investments in capital and then those investments being self-perpetuating. Yeah, great points, honestly, great points. But what I was gonna say is, and it doesn't have to be on film, but just so that I'm understanding what you're saying is that that introduction of you may need to be getting into the rat race to start, but getting out of the rat race by looking yeah. for smart investments, looking for ways to generate capital and to yeah. then turn I mean, that if is- If anything comes out of this, this um, my dialogue, it's just like the next generation is just basically screwed. <laughs> that's like, that's what I really think. Yeah, yeah. You know, my brother... Well, based off what you're saying, yeah. It... My brother is 10 years younger than me. He's got a job working for Airbnb. He's like one of the guys who got that winning lottery ticket. Mm. He makes $250,000 a year between living in San Francisco, his state, city, municipal tax, or excuse me, uh, the, the borough tax, uh -huh. everything he's got. It's about like 150 after that. Of that 150, you've got at least half going to his living expenses, the super high rent that exists out right. there. Right. So if he were to set aside $20,000 a year, and his goal is to buy like a townhome in Ogden, like some of the assets that I have, uh -huh. 
He is looking at working 10 years to buy one $200,000 townhome, which will generate about $1,000 a month. month in rental income. And then he's got property taxes, wear and tear on the property, periods of vacancy on that. So he'll have to work 30 years in order to get three townhomes that will produce him three grand a month. Right? And that's just, you know, how do you ever, and, and at that time he's basically starting to approach retirement. Yeah. So how does one actually generate a retirement plan which does indeed provide a, um, an exit from the workaday world? So I think in that case, you are basically going to be working until you die, which sounds like a very, you know, kind of, of, of morbid assessment. But we are seeing more and more people either defer retirement or um, consider the prospect of working through retirement because they just can't make ends meet otherwise. Um, entitlement programs also, you know, have provided something of a social safety net, but we're seeing, you know, new policies, new attempts at kind of mitigating um, a lot of those, of those entitlements. But what I wanted to communicate before, which I yeah. think is, you know, fairly important is the transition from labor to capital is a new social phenomenon. It's been around for a very long time, but it's now become much more pronounced. It's become more pronounced because of changes to the tax system. It's, it's become more pronounced because the middle class is being more and more stripped of its wealth as wealth is finding its way upstream. Um, over a trillion dollars a year is actually being lost within the middle class strata and is finding its way up to the 1% or one tenth of 1%. Um, and a lot of that is through programs which might even be considered a form of structural classism. So let's assume for a moment that you need to buy a car and that's a $10,000 car. Well, you put that $10,000, or I put my $10,000 into a bank account, at which time the bank loans that $10,000 to you. Well, they're gonna charge you 10% for you to buy the car so you can drive to and from work, but you're the one who needed to borrow the money to begin with. So I am now through this usurious process, through interest, I am taking money out of the middle class and moving it upstream to my strata where I am moneyed enough and wealthy enough to actually loan money in that format. So it's extremely predatory, but that tends to be the cycle where funds flow upward or upstream. Now, the only way to mitigate that kind of process is through very dramatic governmental reform of the tax system itself. So when we had the golden age of US history, that golden age was largely motivated or precipitated by a 90% marginal nominal tax rate, which took place after the New Deal, when it was widely understood that if you made, for instance, over $10 million a year, you could afford to pay, let's say, $9 million of that $10 million that you generated and live very cut in taxes and live very uh, comfortably on that one million. So there were very aggressive contributions that were made by the upper class into the general social welfare. And so is that what would have to happen? So we would need a progressive tax system. The tax system that we have now is extremely regressive. And it's regressive because from the age of Carter and beyond, through the Reagan era, et cetera, we have seen more money in politics, we've seen 
um, kind of a, uh, a reversion back to systems that resemble either A, a polyarchy, or even an oligarchical structure. Um, and what that would essentially dictate is that high concentrations of wealth are really in the hands of a, of a small few, and then the, the rest of the general population is essentially just chiseling off of one another um, in order to make ends meet. So this is not necessarily something which is accidental. So I think one of the notions that I like to disabuse um, you know, folks that I chat with about this topic very readily is this concept that we live in a system which is inherently fair or egalitarian. And the fact is that the way this system is configured is extremely deliberate and has been structured in a very rigged format for the reasons that please a small concentration of individuals in this country. They could be called the polyarchy or the corporatocracy. The corporatocracy, however, does rely on an active workforce, a workforce that has debt that keeps them on that economic treadmill, a workforce that's generally distracted by a lot of material consumption, a workforce that is less politically active um, so that they don't use the power of their vote to, for example, elect more progressive reformers and so forth. So this is all part of a very deliberate system which is designed on it has been designed on a very sophisticated level to ensure that the wage slave system in some format in a much more innocuous format keeps the general population at some level of servitude um, if you are consistently involved in fear and trepidation over your next student loan payment because you went to school you incurred the debt you can't necessarily go get the job that you wanted that might have provided you with uh, more personal freedom or may have been more consistent with your own passions or interests. Rather, you have to take the job and the corporate structure uh, that forces you to uh, you know, basically assume a very specific wage so you can meet those debt obligations. And it is not unintentional that that kind of system exists. So um, if uh, you're a fan of comedy, there is um, you know, a skit on the part of George Carlin, and he comes out and says very uh, bluntly that um, the corporatocracy basically owns you. Make no delusions, um, don't kid yourself. We live in a system which is inherently rigged. Now that's obviously a very extreme perspective um, but certain aspects of that are, you know, aspects that, uh, you know, I would adhere to. So the way I would kind of characterize wealth creation in the next generation of the American story is a very codified uh, socioeconomic system with a shrunken middle class, which we see in various other countries. Um, where we see the ongoing immiseration of the middle class, wage stagnation of people within the middle class, which we've already seen for the past 10, 15 years, and um, more of an emphasis on capital as the primary vehicle to produce wealth versus labor. Um, it was the heir of the Seagram's Corporation. He said, in order to convert $100 into $110 is work. 
to convert $100 million into $110 million is inevitable. And what he means there is, if you're making $100, or you've got that $100, and you're a worker, you're in the labor pool, you're gonna spend that money on your rent and your food and your expenses. That money doesn't really have an opportunity to grow. But if you've got the $100 million and it's generating a 10% interest rate, inevitably that money is going to continue to, uh, to, to reproduce, as it were. Um, so that's kind of the key. And of that money, a million dollars, $2 million might be allocated towards your personal expenses and the rest just goes right back into the pool. Um, because of all the financial products that exist out there, a lot of the money that's being invested on the part of those, um, the, the individuals in the quote unquote usury class um, is again, through various credit products, through credit cards, through for example, mortgages, through various other um, uh, products that are designed to uh, essentially loan money to folks who need it and then pull more money out of the middle class or from the classes that really need those resources into the pockets of the very rich. And the very rich, you know, there has always been this concept of trickle-down economics that the very rich are going to redistribute those funds, that are going, they're going to spend those monies. But actually, case after case after case demonstrates that if you're a corporation or an individual, you will typically hoard those funds if there are tax breaks for, cor for corporations, those ta tax breaks don't go into bonuses. They don't go into hiring more people or raising salaries. They go into layoffs and then stock buyback programs. So that's kind of the, you know, that's really the, the, the you got another? Yeah, you know, go ahead, keep going. We're yeah, so that's, that's, that's really, that's really the, uh, the, the key there is just this, it's, is this concept that if we were to be talking about education, individuals who are looking to make big investments at private colleges or folks that are looking to assume a lot of student debt should be very fearful because the system is rigged to assume or develop um, a, uh, a, an additional debt base is precisely what the system wants and to escape from the economic treadmill is going to require a Herculean effort. So I am very despondent about future prospects for the next generation. Um, I think that there are a lot of hurdles and challenges that we as a country have to overcome. I think that the political pressure is all headed in the wrong direction. And what is really kind of disconcerting about this very vicious cycle is as the wealthy continue to produce more wealth through the existing system that we have in place, they're going to exacerbate, going to exacerbate those structures by virtue of further influencing politics um, through contributions to uh, lobbyist groups and uh, contributions um, to uh, you know the political figures that can make those decisions to the key magistrates involved. So it is not for nothing that under George Bush you saw mass, massive tax-free repatriations of wealth from, let's say, the Cayman Islands and offshore bank accounts back to the United States. This new tax program on the part of, uh, of Donald Trump really designed just to um, you know, further uh, line the pockets of the ultra-rich. 
um, with some very modest short-term concessions, really inconsequential amounts um, to uh, you know the average uh, taxpayer. Those are all developed by design. And um, I think that uh, when you talk about even some of the concerns that a lot of Americans have about job loss, the disappearance of the manufacturing segment in the United States, um, a lot of the antipathy that Americans have and the Trump administration has been very good in redirecting that animosity um, towards, you know, kind of a very innocent group. It's the immigrant population. So there is this false, false assumption that immigrants are coming to the United States and undercutting Americans to take these jobs. And actually, the data would suggest that most of these jobs have actually been lost to automation or these jobs having been taken out of the United States and, and, and certainly you know, sourced offshore. And it hasn't been about some kind of immigrant invasion here in the United States. Moreover, a lot of the jobs that the immigrants do assume are jobs within meatpacking facilities or within the agricultural segment, which most Americans don't want. So the immigrant population provides a very significant economic stimulus. But um, with our current administration, we're looking at a situation where the hostility towards immigrants has reached its absolute zenith. And let's hopefully let's hope that that subsides. And, uh, you know, for, you know, the, the average individual who's looking to make a decision about whether or not they go to school or not go to school, the key takeaway from all of this is that it's going to require the education, it's going to require the self-sacrifice, it's going to require the grit, which is another major component, it's going to require the, the aptitude, and then it will also require a confluence of factors over which you have no control, like luck and being at the right place at the right time by way of opportunity striking and then recognizing those opportunities, that combination, uh, if uh, they all can join at just the right time, that might get you out of this otherwise highly rigged system, which is designed to provide uh, individuals with a superstructure whereby breaking out of the economic rat race is all but extremely improbable. Well, that was a very great ending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't practice that? You didn't practice no, that in front no, of the mirror, did you? No. That was so, pretty good. No, that was all, that was all extemporaneous. Um, that was good. Uh, yeah, so I think that that's was probably... Great. I just kept letting you talk. I have, we have questions, but I just kept letting you talk because it was ironic. You kept hitting like a lot of the questions that, that I wanted to ask. Um, the last question that we're asking everybody, yep. if you don't mind, sure. um, is uh, what does success mean to you? Uh, yeah, okay, so I think that, um, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I'm actually going to provide you with, you know, something of maybe a trite response. Um, it may sound a little bit uh, corny, but um, for those uh, enthusiasts of um, uh, the, uh, the film Jerry Maguire, there's a, a rather colorful character um, who, Within that film, he talks about this principle of the Quan. Um, and the Quan 
has iterations in other traditions as well, but the way he characterizes it, he characterizes it as abundance within multiple settings. So the relationships that you have with friends and family, uh, the wealth that you generate so that you can enjoy a lifestyle which is commensurate with your expectations, to have some kind of spiritual enlightenment, um, to engage in new experiences that are uh, um, uh, uh, rewarding and uh, you know, provide um, that vitality uh, and the champagne of life, as it were, um, to engage in um, a state of awareness and presence that allows you to be engaged with um, uh, your present condition as opposed to preoccupations with various frustrations of the past or insecurities of the future. Um, and um, uh, if you can encapsulate the relationships, um, the inward knowledge or the spiritual enlightenment, um, if you can enjoy rigorous exercise and a healthy diet so that you enjoy um, a, uh, a, 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 the physical health required to not only expand your lifespan, but also, also your health span and your longevity within, within the, the years that you're here on this planet. Um, that's how I would de define success. And you would also define success through the lens of a keener awareness that within a cosmological cycle, Human beings don't even really constitute more than a brief few seconds um, in you know, this broader timetable. And your life or my life is nothing more than a nanosecond, some small fraction of a second within this much broader cosmos, uh, where we live within a galaxy with over 100 billion planets um, within a solar system with hundreds and billions of galaxies. So an appreciation for just how minute we are, um, an appreciation for um, a, uh, a being which is much broader than ourselves, um, and any kind of attempt that we have in order to recognize the indivisibility of you or me from that broader uh, uh, kind of landscape that exists. Um, that we're all part of a much broader uh, being and that um, to enjoy, appreciate, and to respect our time on this earth is, is really crucial. And then to provide meaningful contributions while we're here as well. So, I mean, I think that would be, that would be the best way to kind of define that. Um, and I'm still, you know, in the process, um, even now, um, of, 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 of learning a lot of that. And, um, uh, attempting to, uh, you know, have a, a positive impact on those around me with every passing day and also to engage in, you know, positive self-improvement and um, hopefully I'm making strides. What more can you ask for, right? Yeah, so that's the uh, definition of success. Is there anything else? Any final questions? You said a lot of great stuff, really. I'm not allowed to talk or else I'd ruin your audio, but the whole time I wanted to be agreeing with you. I love the stuff you're saying. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think it was great. I think that was fantastic, yeah. I think it was great. Okay, okay, think, good. Do you have anything else you really want to say? Like in, in the spectrum that we're talking about college, right? We're talking about this overview of education. Uh, a question we have is if you could give your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, okay, so you're still rolling? Uh-huh. Yeah. 
So I think the advice that I would generally give to individuals who are approaching young adulthood um, is, I mean, sadly, it's kind of a cynical perspective about just how much work they have ahead of them in order to distinguish themselves from the pack. Um, I think it's generally helpful to identify their goals and priorities. And if their goals are modest, then, um, you know, they should be prepared to uh, transition into some kind of technical institution where they can get a hard skill under their belt um, and, uh, you know, immediately kind of engage within the workaday world. I think one of the things that has always been distressing for me is that we live within a system where young people are energized, galvanized, and directed to become undifferentiated practitioners of business. And as an undifferentiated practitioner of business, you become another cog within this broader mechanism, which is designed to carry um, kind of the surplus value of your labor, to borrow some of the principles and tenets from Karl Marx, upward to those who are the owners of capital. So, you know, I would love to say, follow your passions, follow your interests. And I've seen a lot of uh, individuals, you know, giving uh, thinly textured and breathless TED Talks on that topic. But honestly, we don't really live in a world where there's a lot of latitude for independent discretion or where your own individual preferences um, are going to um, are, are, are going to you know carry much weight. Um, what I do think is when it comes to um, the characterization of individual success, um, one has to be very practical about um, just how long a road uh, there, there is ahead, ahead of oneself and the personal sacrifices that one is going to have to make. Because what I learned at a very early age, and um, you know, there's certainly a lot of things I would tell myself going back in time retrospectively. I think I did a lot of things correctly and, and I made some mistakes along the way. But the thing that, that, that I would probably tell myself back in, you know, the, at the age of 20, or I would tell to other young adults kind of um, uh, searching for a path through life is the margin between success and failure is razor thin. And it only takes one or two mistakes. The piece of real estate, um, the, the starter home that you purchased that you couldn't quite afford, or the car payment, which was, you know, too excessive, um, or, you know, a number of, 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 of other possible small mistakes that can set you shooting off in a different course. So bear in mind that, that, uh, that, that the margin between success and failure is, is very thin, and I think it's getting more and more, uh, or progressively more thin, as we move out of a world of just competition into one of hyper-competition, where um, we have a bigger and bigger pool of individuals all scrambling for a smaller piece of the pie. Great. Okay. Great so, advice. Anyway. Great advice. All right, guys. Let me take a selfie really quick. Okay. For the Instagram. <clears throat> Trying to come get me. Oh,